So you've never been in space, you say? Oh. Yeah, I haven't been in space yet. Yet. I would like to, but the, okay, place, the tickets pricing are a little expensive for 2030 yeah, with Elon, a, so. Still a little steep. Go ahead and take your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land, green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. My name's Hal Bryan and I'm one of your hosts on the Green Dot. By day, I'm the senior editor for print and digital content and publications here at EAA. Sitting on my left. I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EA Museum Programs Coordinator. And across the table, doing that thing he does. Tom Charpentier, Government Relations Director. All right, guys, we've got uh, we've got another uh, fascinating guest with us today. Uh, his name's Kyle Bushman. He's uh, he's coming to us uh, over the uh, the miracle of the interwebs from uh, an undisclosed location somewhere in Oregon, and uh, as the uh, owner and operator of the Ragwood Refactory Restoration Shop, and he's got some cool airplanes and some great stuff to talk to us about. So, Kyle, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. The uh, yeah, it's cool how we can all connect via Skype and make all this stuff work the way it does. Exactly, as as good as it can. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we had a few struggles before we started, but uh, thanks to Ty's editing uh, editing wizardry to the you the uh, listener, it will seem seamless. Right, Ty? Ty's shrugging for those who uh, those who are wondering. <laughs> So Kyle, uh, let's let's do what I always uh, really like to do whenever I talk to anybody who's uh, who's in aviation. Let's go back to the go back to the the beginning. Um, well, you're a little kid. Are, are you interested in airplanes? Are you building models? Or how did uh, how did you first decide that aviation was something you were into? Well, so aviation for me started, I think, like a lot of people, it started in uh, RC models, building and flying, and um, it started with the ready to fly models and then I progressed into balsa wood building. And from there it just filled up and everything kept getting bigger and bigger. And I could tell even at that age, um, from like eight years old to like 14, 15 years old that I enjoyed building the models as much as I enjoyed flying them. Um, yeah. And so like the, the, then I, we did the first introductory, I did my first introductory flight and then it all snowballed from there. How old were you when you did that first flight? I did my first introductory flight when I was 14 years old um, and then started flying lessons, then soloed on my 16th birthday. And then at that point, I realized the cost of um, aviation was the the most expensive part of aviation for my grandfather, because that's who was helping me do all this at that point, was the maintenance. Uh, He had a Ryan Navion restored. Um, which is a really cool, unique airplane that you don't see a lot. It's a four-place airplane, low wing, um, high performance, complex. Um, and so the maintenance for us was really expensive. And so I had heard when I was going to school that um, there, LCC had a program to get my a- your AMP in two years. And so I thought, well, if nothing else, I'll get my AMP, which will guarantee flying for me for my whole life. It'll be cheaper across my whole life and make it, I can get more hours and all that stuff. I can do all my own maintenance. And so I went that route, um, and went to, uh, LCC, got my AMP out of there and kind of the normal path for mechanics, 
uh, at coming out of LCC was you're going to go to the airlines or you're going to go to work on firefighting helicopters. And all the young guys were going to chase the helicopters around because the, uh, it was just the most money. And if you could travel, that's when all that stuff started coming up. And I went to do a job interview in Northern California and I'm 20 at this point. And I just had my AMP ticket in my hand and I went down there and I thought, Oh, I'm going to go do helicopter stuff and be able to travel all over the place. And when I went to the job interview, I wasn't old enough to get insured on the fuel trucks. And so I couldn't get hired. And so I was like, dang. And so it was like this kind of like this mini bubble pop. I'm like, well, I can't get older faster. Like that, and that's not a choice. Uh, that happens when you get to be my age. <laughs> I promise you that. So then, so then I, I kind of came home and regrouped and I was kind of thinking, well, I've got this ticket. What, what's my plan? And I had been volunteering at a museum, the Oregon Aviation Historical Society, and kind of just coming and going. One of the guys I went to school with helped out down there, um, Ben Ferringer. And so he was my connection to the museum. And that's where I met Tim Talon. And he wasn't hiring an employees. He wasn't looking for to hire anyone. But I thought Ben's like, no, maybe if you just went up there and talked to him, maybe you can get a job up there and doing the antique restoration stuff. And at that point, I could tell that fabric work and working on the antiques was it's obviously a niche thing, but I could tell it was there's not a lot of it around. And so I thought it'd be a really good skill set that I could learn kind of in that in-between time where until I was old enough to get carted or uh, insured on a fuel truck. <laughs> so I went up there to work and I knocked on the door and I had my, this fresh ticket in my hand and it's like the brand new AMP. And I'm like, hey, I, I know you don't have, you weren't, uh, didn't have, weren't requesting for resumes or anything, but I'd love to come and work for you. And we kind of talked and he showed me all the, I mean, he has this hangar house in Jasper, Oregon, and it's this massive hangar with, I mean, all just full of antiques. I mean, it's like, it's the American picker's dream for antique aviation that's just full. And so I went there and we were walking around and by the time it all got said and done, he's like, yeah, maybe we can do like 10 hours a week. And at that point my bubble was popped again. I'm like 10 hours a week. I'm thinking in my head, like, how am I going to survive? <laughs> so I just, I kind of, I just said, well, I don't have anything else going on. So I'll, I'll go for the 10 hours a week. And from that point, it just went full time when I went up there, we just, it just clicked really well. And I had the hand skills to, and the learning ability to learn this stuff. And so we just went to work building airplanes. Um, and I was there three years. We built several restorations that we took to Oshkosh. Matt Northway was um, his interstate cadet. It was a cream and orange interstate cadet we did was the last one I did at the shop um, before I moved to Cresswell. And how that transition happened was Tim got to the point where he's ready to retire. And I'd been there working, working there for about three years. And um, I was given the decision of, well, I could – take over the shop where I could go and work, work somewhere else. And I'd really, you could, the tube and fabric stuff, just like model building for me was like restoring antique airplanes was what I was meant to do. Um, and I could tell that right away when I was working up there. And so I decided that I would take that big leap of faith of opening a shop, tooling the shop up because Tim wasn't going to sell his hangar house with all his stuff. And like he was still restoring antiques for personal projects for himself. And so what he did was he gave me the name Ragwood Refactory, and then I bought a shop, bought a hangar, and the hangar I bought has great history, actually. Uh, Steve Wolf, it was Steve Wolf's hangar, and he built this hangar up, and he built the GB, he built the wing for the H1, 
um, I built all kinds of stuff in this oh, wow. hanger. And so the hanger had kind of the, the right DNA, but it was also set up to manufacture airplanes as it was. And so I kind of walked into this hangar and it was like the perfect situation. And I liked the airport. I'm at Cresswell Airport. So I moved here. And then I spent the next six months after that just trying to get the shop ready because it's an empty building basically. But it had separate rooms that worked out perfectly. So then I started building the shop up. And then my biggest fear when I moved to Cresswell was that I was going to tool this whole shop up, take out these loans, make all this stuff happen. And my phone wasn't going to ring. I was going to be like, whoa, now what? But that's exactly the opposite of what happened. When I got the shop ready, I mean, the work for uh, tube and fabric and antique restorations, I mean, there's so much work out there and opportunity. Um, it's very, very labor intensive. Working with your, it's, it's not inspection work we're doing. It's we're creating. We're really artists and we're creating stuff from nothing. And a lot of times all we have is drawings or uh, pictures and very little drawings. And the photos we're looking at, we're kind of using very subtle clues and building techniques because all these airplanes that we're building are standard category. They're not experimental. So we need to return them to their type design, how they came out of the factory. Sure. And so there's hurdles with that um, and things, and a lot of things I learned at Tim's. And then through the connection of social media too, we're able to reach millions of people that we've never been able to talk to we'd have to back in we'd have to send letters or show up at an airport and try to find someone whereas now we can connect so we get a lot of those answers answered but the problem that the, the problem that's out there now is those guys that really know the antiques are passing away and a lot of that knowledge is truly getting lost and it's kind of one of those lost arts and i and i feel like i just fell into the perfect situation to learn this skill set at the right time. So let me ask you this, if you don't, if you don't mind a slightly personal question, um, how old were you when you, uh, when you actually set up that shop and you took over from Tim? So that was 23. So I'm just about to turn 26. So I've been in this shop two and a half years now going on three. Wow. And you know, uh, Tim Talon certainly, and the name Regwood Refactory, very well known in, in the vintage aviation world, especially out in the Pacific Northwest, my old stomping grounds. Um, one of his big things, you mentioned an interstate cadet, and he was he was sort of one of the interstate cadet guys, wasn't he? Exactly, yeah. So he was the interstate cadet ex- expert. Um, he had, he had, and it's funny, so like you say, like you get the, the, the interstate cadet guy, kind of where that came from, from Tim, from talking to Tim. And it's funny how it works, and it's that way with a lot of people. He bought an interstate cadet early on and wanted to restore it. And when you restore an airplane, you really have to become the expert on it because you're going through everything from top to bottom. And then you're kind of buying parts. And he kind of he said it just snowballed from there for him where, like, he, he built one, and then they found another one, and someone wanted to – that was his – he built his personal one, and then someone found another one and wanted him to uh, build it up for him because he had spare parts and he had the knowledge. And it kind of grew from there. And I think that's a really normal storyline for these different guys, these especially antiquers or even guys right now. Like you kind of master or learn an airplane and then you really get the reputation for knowing that airplane. So can you tell me a little bit about what uh, some of the restoration projects you've worked on, like what types of aircraft? So we've done a lot of different stuff. A lot of the small trainer stuff, we've done champs, uh, Cubs, J3 Cubs, Super Cubs, um, 
trying to, I mean, there's just a, a, a PA 14. I'm working on a PA 14 right now, which is a Piper built four place airplane. They only built 238 of them. So they, they're really rare. And where the direction I've taken this PA 14 is, um, that we're the owner, but, um, where I've helped him get is he wanted a modern day Bush airplane but he wanted it on the four-place fuselage because Super Cubs are narrow. J3 Cubs are narrow. He wanted more room in the airplane. He has two 185s already, but he wanted a, a fabric airplane. He wanted something that was unique. And so we were able to find this ultra-rare PA-14 and restore it for him. And being certified, a lot of the antiques, they don't get the paperwork trail. They don't they, Because the, when people do STCs, companies do STCs to get their parts put on airplanes. They really want to hit the main types, but there's a lot of airplanes in the middle where there's not high production numbers that they don't put the engineering and the money in. And as it were for the Piper series though, a lot of the STCs that applied to the Super Cubs also applied to the PA-14 because the PA-14 is a popular, as I say popular, they only made 238 of these PA-14s. Well, any of them that are left are in Alaska because they, the mission that they fit, they're wide fuselage, and so they worked out well. Um, but so the 14 had a lot of STC options. So when we restored this one, it really looks like a 57 Chevy that was hot rodded is the closest thing I could compare it to in the car world. We went, we extended the wings. Um, we put a full wrap leading edge. We've extended the baggage. We've put six-inch extended gear, big tires, VGs. We really made it in that modern Bush air, airplane that's so popular right now. But it took a vintage airplane to do it. So it's kind of hot-rodding and antique, um, which was a lot of fun for me because it was skill sets of that I learned at Tim's for the antique stuff where we're doing tr very traditional fabric work, doing very traditional building, whereas this was that same mentality, but we also threw a lot of these – upgraded parts on it and so it kind of made this essentially a 57 chevy that was hot rotted out i can't wait to see that is that uh, coming to air venture this summer yeah so it's definitely going to come to air venture this summer oh cool um, i was just yep. just taking a chance but that's great yeah yeah and, and i have i'll have the restoration this one's at the very end it'll be done in about a month like early january we should be doing our first flights with it very cool you mentioned a little while ago um, about the kind of the process that you go through for uh, a lot of aircraft where the, the build pro the original build techniques and process may not be known. Uh, I know we've done uh, quite a bit of that ourselves with uh, things like our, our uh, nearly or 90 year old uh, Ford tri-motors and things like that, where it's kind of like um, it's kind of like trying to figure out how they built the pyramids, you know, uh, f figuring out how um, how some of these techniques go together. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that process uh, for you and uh, and and how you uh, are able to figure it out? Yeah, it's kind of, it's really interesting how like the the background that I got gives me a certain set of eyes to look at airplanes, and everyone has a different perspective. But with my when I got into air with got into working with Tim, my eyes were trained for the antique like how to do antique airplanes, all of the skills that we, that I learned from Tim were the similar ways that he learned from guys and the guys he was learning from, from were the guys that were around during world war two and, and were around for all of that stuff. And I can really look at 
and it's, it's fucking everyone else, but you can look at airplanes and World War II is a defining time in aviation for airplanes. Before World War II, most of the airplanes were built by throwing manpower at them. They're handmade. They weren't using big heavy machinery stamping. They weren't using big stamping presses or mills. They're hand making ribs. They're doing it all the handmade. And that trickled on for maybe 10 years after World War II, but then really everyone switched over. Because in World War II, they learned how to make big, heavy metal fighters, fast airplanes, big airplanes. They did it with mass production. And so at that, after World War II, everything's, it's hard to restore airplanes when you have to make specialty machining and stamps. And But airplanes that were restored around World War II or built around World War II or just before, you can really, everything's handmade. And so the way they built everything was with simple hand tools and people walk into my shop and they're really surprised when they look at the sheet metal and the parts that I'm making with the very, very limited tools that I'm using. And it's just that period in aviation, that golden age of aviation, they were hand making everything. And so when I go to make parts, it's pretty easy for easy to, there's limited tools to use to make a lot of these parts. So it makes it easy. But then the hardest thing is, if we have a gap in, like if you have a, a, a part and it's missing, it's not in the pile, and you're not sure what it's supposed to look like. But if you, can, if you have a picture of something that you can look at, the process they went to build it, it's always very simple. So it's not like it's some big cast part at a refinery or something, it's handmade. So when you look at it, you can kind of cut it apart in your brain and kind of look at the processes that they use to make it, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Um, have you ever had to uh, make something you know, particularly goofy as far as a custom tool or a jig or something like that? And, and uh, goofy being the technical term. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it, like you're constantly, any mechanic has that drawer in their toolbox of all of those special tools that they made that are priceless to them but worthless to anyone else because they don't know what they are. I mean, it, and it could be as simple as like we need to hold – this aileron as we're putting it on and so we need to make pins and the pins could be as simple as we cut off long bolts and weld it on a handle on the end and so you'd look at that and you'd never guess what it is but it becomes with the building process it becomes an essential tool um and it's also cool for me because i can look at airplanes and kind of break them apart in my in my brain of how they the process they went to build something up and so it's really entertaining for me to go to places like Oshkosh where you get some of these guys that have been building beautiful antiques and beautiful airplanes in general and kind of like look at them and kind of imagine the process that I would go through to do it and then talk to them. And then you realize how similar everyone is and how similar all of our everything we're doing is. It's all the same kind of thing because the, the in the antiques, there's a lot of just like head scratching and figuring out what you're going to have to do. It's not like uh, a van's aircraft where you're going to have a manual and you just turn the page. Like the, you have to invent the process as you go, and the more you do it, the more refined and better you get at at doing that. Yeah, definitely. There's a there's a story at a, in our hangar. Uh, it's still legendary of uh, this bizarre ratcheting bucking bar uh, for reskinning part of the trimotor wing that our master machinist uh, Bach and Nowak put together. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's things like that where uh, you, you, you might know what the part looks like, but you might not know what the, what the machinery that made the part 
looked like and things like that. that that's always very fascinating. There's a B-17 getting restored uh, in Salem, just north of me. And like, I went and looked at kind of the, what they, what they were they were just starting to pull the airplane apart. And some of the processes were like you're talking about a bucking bar. I mean, there's the spar. There's some rivets that need to be driven that like when you look in, it's like you have to have a bucking bar that's going to be about eight feet long with a wedge <laughs> just to get the back side of the rivet. And the guys, like it would be so easy if the guys that were in the manufacturing or at the factories building these B-17s because you could ask them if they were still around or if they still remembered how are you guys doing that? And there's usually a simple answer, but if you don't know, you just have to invent a way. Yeah. So Kyle, what is it about, uh, I think you've touched on this a little bit here and there, but what is it about the, the vintage airplanes that, that seem to hold your attention? I, I certainly get the sense, and we'll talk about your airplanes in just a second, but I certainly get the sense this is more than just a job for you. Yeah. And like, that's where, so, so for me, what really the, once you for me the thing that really get that just i know that i'm meant to do it is when you start a project and like you you have to be in love with doing it because the process is such a battle that by the time you get to the end you're just so beat up you have to just love it i mean the that, that's just the bottom line and the moment for me that it's just like i've never had it in my life and it's the biggest high you could ever have in my opinion is when the airplane's sitting there ready to fly and the airplane takes flight for the first time and you're in the airplane or you're standing on the ground and you're like, I built that and it's flying right now. And like that feeling is like unmatched. And the first couple of times that that happened where I took part of major restorations and then built airplanes at the shop here, it was just a, it's hard to describe because it's a responsibility. You, you built the whole airplane. So you have people's lives in your hands. And so it's like you do your job every day. I do my job every day knowing for that moment that when I'm standing there, I know that I did it perfect. And so that's why I don't rush. That's why I don't cut corners because I know at some point in that airplane's future, I'm going to be standing on the ground or in the airplane flying it and I want it to be perfect. Hey, this is Hal. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Green Dot. We're going to take a quick break for a special message from EAA's chairman and CEO, Jack Pelton. Here's a special message for all you Green Dot podcast listeners. Hello, this is Jack Pelton, the chairman of the board and CEO of EAA. Today, I'm asking you to make a year-end gift to the EA All-Member Annual Fund for Excellence campaign. It's only through your generous support that EA can open the doors to aviation for young and old alike. With nearly 250,000 members worldwide, Gifts of all levels are important to meeting our $1.2 million goal. Sharing the spirit of aviation during the season of giving by making a donation opens endless possibilities for the next generation. The impact of your gift is far-reaching and makes a difference right away by underwriting museum educational programs including school tours, safety and advocacy initiatives, resources for EA chapters, and experimental amateur-built home builders. Air Academy and Sport Pilot Academy programs, the Woman Soar, You Soar experience, programs that nurture the next generation of aviators, flight experiences in a variety of historic aircraft, sustaining and improving our beautiful campus and facilities that preserve, curate, and promote aviation. Your decision to make a year-end gift makes it all happen. Please make your $25, $50, $100, 
or a generously more tax-deductible donation today online at eaa.org backslash annual fund or by mail. Thank you for your support. And now back to the Green Dot Podcast. You're here. Now, uh, earlier on, you mentioned, you talked about your grandfather a bit, and you mentioned he had a Navy on. And uh, you and I have been Facebook friends for quite a, quite some time, and I see you tooling all over the place in a absolutely gorgeous Navy on. Is that, uh, was that your grandfather's airplane? Yeah, so that was my grandfather's airplane. Um, he what, got out of flying, but um, when he, he had that airplane restored by a guy on the East Coast. And so when he, right at the end, like right at the start of my flying career, is when he had that airplane built right around that time. He, it overlapped a little bit. Um, and, and it was kind of like the first introductory to an antique for me the, the Navion really doesn't look that old. When you look at, look at a lot of them, they look like the world war two product, but it's still that they're an antique airplane. So they take a lot of care. And yours is, uh, uh, yours is pretty nicely updated. These pictures I've seen in the interior and everything. Um, how, uh, can you talk about that for just a little bit about what, uh, um, how is yours different from uh, when it left the factory back in, in probably what, 47, 48? Yeah. So the, for, for my grand, we're, we're this thought process and a lot of the stuff you, you learn from the people around you. And so for my thought process with airplanes and keeping them safe, I really learned a lot of it from my grandfather. When he restored the Navy on, he was under the thought process that I'm going to be flying this airplane or my grandson is going to be flying this airplane. There's going to be our family in the airplane. So we really want this airplane to be as safe as possible. And when you say safe, modern technology changes aviation. I mean, there's flight apps and there's glass screens and all these different options. There's a balance. There's definitely a balance with keeping an airplane original, but then also keeping them, making them modern for the safety. And with the Navy on, my grandfather really wanted to go the direction of making it as modern as possible. So the avionics in an airplane are really life support equipment. And so in that thought process, he just went with all of the latest and greatest uh, avionics. It's a glass screen, essentially. When it was restored, they didn't have the glass screens like they do today, where they're just one unit where everything's plugged in the back. But we have Aspens. Uh, we have a 430 now, but we're putting a GTN 750 in it. Um, so he kind of really made it a modern airplane, and it's really a, I think of it as a, an equivalent to a Cirrus, um, between the cruise speed of 175 miles an hour, the useful load of 1,300 pounds. Um, I mean, it's just a great airplane, and it's a heavy airplane, but it's cool because it has that antique DNA. Um, yeah, and like, and it's similar to like this PA14 we're talking about hot rodding antiques. Um, that's essentially what happened there. But just making – and all the, the underlying message is always safety, and we're going to have family in the airplane, so we want this thing to be perfect. That's very cool. Uh, you've got another uncommon airplane in your uh, in your hangar, and that's the Naval Aircraft Factory N3N. It's a big, sturdy biplane. Um, how did you come about acquiring that? So the, the long and the short of how the N3N showed up on my doorstep um, – I, there was a, a vintage air rally is what the rally is called. And we're going to race vintage airplanes from Ushuaia, Argentina, all the way to Lakeland, Florida. And I had entered in the air rally. And I really, when I entered the air rally, what I thought 
I'm just a normal pilot. I'm just a normal person. I didn't have a biplane at the time. I was flying the Navy on, but I thought really where my niche was, was as a mechanic, as an air, antique airplane mechanic. And we're going to run this race or these teams were competing to run this race. And I thought, wow, what I'll do is I won't apply with a, with an airplane. I'll apply and I'll push the fact that I'm an antique airplane mechanic and when we go take these airplanes down there I'll join your team and you'll have support the whole entire way and that that idea didn't work out for me the uh, I was making all of the cuts so they started with 800 teams from 50 different countries and they whittled them all the way down to 15 teams um, from 13 different countries and I kept making all of the cuts but I wasn't getting I couldn't make a connection with any other team to get on their team to be a mechanic and it got all the way to the very end and they were making that final selection of the 15 teams and I get a call from the vintage air rally and they're, they're brainstorming. They're like, Kyle, we want you to come on the race. We know that um, you're going to be able to help a lot of these airplanes. We, your background is perfect for what we're trying to do. And so they basically said, if you can buy an airplane and fly it or get on a team, Team, you're on the race and so there was like a 24-hour period 48-hour period where I realized this and I was like okay and I called all my buddies and called everyone I could think of that would have a connection on a good airplane and I had known about this N3N from Bill Robinette he's the previous owner and he, he has a book and he was a great barnstormer and crop duster and he had the airplane, but I never would have thought it would have been for sale because he had bought and sold 40 airplanes and the N3N was the only airplane he ever kept. And so I had a friend that was a lot better uh, friends with Bill than I was, just had known him better. And so me and Brian went over there and talked to him and we convinced Bill that we were going to buy his airplane <laughs> and we were going to race it from Ushuaia, Argentina to Lakeland, Florida in a 45 day race. And, and, Bill decided that, that he wanted to sell it, and so I was able to bootstrap the funds and buy the airplane for that race, and that race is happening um, next winter. And then the, that kind of that's how the N3N showed up on my doorstep. And it's like the all these things that kind of they chain together, but the N3N is a very, very special airplane. It's very – they only made 900 total, but be, because they were a lot – bigger and sturdier of an airplane the crop dusters really liked them which means the a lot of them got when they got sold surplus out of the navy in 65 or 66 when they navy uh, got done with them they got bought up by crop dusters so a lot of them got damaged or corroded and mine only sprayed for a few years before bill bought it so we were really lucky and then bill cherished it and kept it and what he did was in 2002 2000 he restored the airplane as the last airplane that he was going to fly and so somehow I found an old time crop duster that restored his favorite crop dusting series airplane for his last airplane so it's just he, he did everything right everything on the airplane is just gorgeous and so I got really lucky for the N3N to show up on my doorstep uh, how many people uh, come up to you at a fly-in and say nice steerman <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah, that's the everyone. Everyone says it's a steerman, and it, it would drive Bill wild. Oh, I'm sure. And 
around it that much. So you you can obviously be somewhat forgiven. You know, it's a radial engine, open cockpit, a big stout stance and everything else but i i think once you get up to it and you realize how much bigger it is and how much more solid it is oh yeah it's and the thing that i do which it's very that what i do to the steerman owners is i walk up to a steerman and i walk up and i go wow this is the nicest n3n i've ever seen <laughs> oh, nice way to strike they, a blow back they go oh it's a it's actually a steerman and i go Oh, I thought it looked a little small. Yeah. <laughs> Start calling them seven eight scale N three N replicas. <laughs> See how that goes over. Well, so yeah. so Kyle, just have to ask, what's your favorite part of flying? For me, so I actually did a when I was in high school. We had a, a paper we had to do, and it's like, who's your hero? And who I chose for my personal hero was a cowboy or the American Cowboys. And what that was for me in the, in the in the paper in the high school paper that I wrote basically was me trying to describe how when they set off to go do something, they only had the group of people that they were with or the skill set that they learned to go out and if to go out and, and that's all they had. Whereas now with modern society, we have cell phones, we have we can always Google, we can always call someone, and so for flying for me, it's that moment when you're in the airplane and all you have is the skill set that you learn or the person next to you and that's it. And so like when it's just you in the airplane, it's all the skills that you learned is all you have. And that moment of it's a freedom. It's like, I think it's really like freedom thing probably of like, it's one of the moments where you're the most free. So for flying, that's, that's my favorite thing. It's just that moment of like, all you have is what you learned and it's just total freedom. Yeah, I think a lot of us share that. It's uh, it, it, it's kind of that feeling. Uh, I always describe it as kind of that first solo feeling when you first break ground and you realize that uh, the only thing that's going to get me back on the ground successfully is uh, me and uh, and what I've learned or gravity. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. I said successfully, Chris. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, it'll, it it's never failed yet. Yeah, gravity has never failed. Although, yeah, successful and safe are not always the same thing, but. As long as we know what Tom's criteria are. Fair enough. Um, that was the thing when I took the N3N N3 to High Sierra this year. It was, you just, we just, you had to get in the airplane, just fly out into the desert, and you were going to land on several lake beds or a lake bed, and you were going to go out to the High Sierra fly in. And it's that, it, it really encompassed exactly the reasons why I like flying. It was just that, that flying and bringing the N3N out there was that for me. Yeah. That must have been interesting. Taking a uh, were there uh, many other classic aircraft out there at High Sierra? No, it's it, uh, there's it's all Bush airplanes basically. Um, so it was cool to be an antique aircraft restoration and bring an airplane like the N3N out because the the runways that they were flying on back then were not very improved, and a lot of times it was grass fields, and a lot of times it was sure where they could land. So the airplanes are capable. It's just not something we see today. And so for me to take that airplane out there and kind of show people that, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of aircraft from that era, uh, there were a lot of debates back then about whether or not it was safe to land on asphalt. Well, and you'll learn that. So that, that was one of the things when when I was first learning to fly the N3N is a big biplane like that loves the grass. Like, it is just a sweetheart to land. But when you land on narrow pavement, it's everything you have at that exact moment to do your job and land the airplane because they are just so grippy 
And so I could see how those pilots transitioning in that period would definitely feel that way because that's how I feel. I would choose grass over pavement any day. Yeah, yeah. So you've talked a lot about restoring aircraft, and you talked uh, uh, quite a bit about flying aircraft. Um, I know the the building and restoring part is your job, but if you had to pick a personal favorite of what you like to do, what would it be? It would be building. The uh, that's my personal favorite because it gives me a space to create. Um, because it's like you start with so little and you end with a finished airplane. And you're in a very small community of guys that do that. And so when you get around the guys that are also building and restoring, it's like you can relate to them on a level that's more because you know the struggles that it took for them to get there, and they know the struggles it took for you to get there. And so it's what it's building would be my personal favorite. Uh, that's very, very cool. For um, I, I'm impressed you had a, a an answer to that question. I, I thought that would have been, you know, a, like asking Tom to choose his favorite parent or something <laughs> like that. One of those that you just can't can't pick. I don't um, want to down flying. I mean, flying I love, but like the moment of building, and I think as more people are doing experimental airplanes and getting that opportunity to build airplanes, uh, pe- people realize that it's a lot of fun to build airplanes. Absolutely. So <clears throat> a couple of questions as we uh, as we start to wrap up here, Kyle. Um, so uh, I know you worked with, uh, Sarah Nissler, our, our, uh, uh, digital manager on, uh, on getting this set up. And, uh, um, she of course is, is a sort of behind the scenes presence on this show. And uh, she wanted us to ask you, uh, what you see in the future of aviation or in her words, what do you want to do when you grow up? And, uh, and of course, none of us share that sentiment and, uh, and we think Sarah is cruel and, uh, and heartless, but, uh, but anyway, what, uh, where do you see yourself, uh, so yourself going? Are we, is uh, Redwood refactory going to keep growing and growing and staying busy? Yeah. Yeah. There's no, there's no doubt that the shop will always be busy and I'll be able to work as many hours as I want in, anti- in, in restoration or building. Cause there's just work out there. Um, I, I'm, I'm, you never know what, what the future is going to hold, but I think I'm just going to be building airplanes and flying antiques and meeting up with buddies and going to fly-ins. And that's going to be, I found, I found what I was supposed to do early. So I'm a lucky one that I get to do it for a long time in my life. You know, you're, uh, uh, on your Facebook profile, you had something, um, maybe you can remind me exactly what it is, but basically it's something about where you've got, you've got 50 years to do to do something and I, I thought that was actually pretty profound can you can you tell me those exact words yeah like um so for me it was i, I think that the on the top it was a tagline essentially something along the gist of i have 50 years to help save aviation and for me i look at antique airplanes and it's not something that's a growing industry there's fewer and fewer antiques and there's less and less people that are capable of flying them or that have the budgets or the time and for me i always make it a big point to to help to show people how easy a lot of these things are and how you anyone just i'm just a very normal person from a very normal town and that like all these people that feel the same way just like I do, they can get involved and build airplanes and do these things. And I think people talk about aviation and growing general aviation. Traditionally, the way aviation and fly-ins worked were 
a lot of people would go to big fly or fly-ins, local fly-ins and hang out and meet people and talk. And that was kind of how a lot of people did it. Now I think that community that people used to have at fly-ins regularly in their towns all over, all summer long, that community has really moved to the social media platform and we're going to be able to connect with people from all over the world. And I think that to help general aviation keep going, it's connecting people on these social media platforms. So when they show up to new cities and go to new places, they're able to meet and share the same interests. Um, so yeah, long and short, I guess. Oh, that's excellent. You know, I, I, there's a lot of us here that are, are very passionate about, uh, about the vintage airplanes, the antiques and classics. And, you know, it's, it's certainly, uh, said often, and I certainly think of this anytime I fly fly something uh, from that era that you know we're these temporary stewards and these airplanes will be around long after we're gone. But that's only uh, going to be true uh, if there are people like you, uh, people your generation that are stepping in and are going to keep these airplanes uh, flying. And so um, I'm eh, about twice your age. I'm ashamed to say, but. Uh, the next time I fly an antique, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna remember you and remember our conversation, and uh, and realize that 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 mental promise that I make that this airplane will be going long after I'm gone, um, that's uh, that's gonna come true thanks to uh, thanks to people like you, Kyle. So we appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, and I, and I could, thank you, and I couldn't couldn't agree more that our mentality, even even for myself, is we've got to preserve and save these airplanes for the future generation. And part of that's not just the, the airplanes itself, but it's passing on the knowledge and the skill set to fly these tailwheels, to fly whatever the airplane is. Of course. And so when you're in that unique opportunity that you have an airplane or around airplanes like that, it's really your job as a steward to promote that. You're here. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for taking some time today to, uh, to come on the show. This has been, uh, been another fascinating and informative episode. Um, Looking forward to seeing that uh, that PA fourteen here this summer, and uh, and whatever else you've got up your sleeve. I hope you'll keep in touch with us. Keep us posted on the other projects that come through your shop. Yeah, and without question, I'll keep you guys in the loop. And I can't thank you guys enough for taking the time to interview me. Well, the pleasure's all been uh, all been on this side of the internet. I can promise you that. So with that, uh, thanks again to our guest Kyle. Thanks uh, as always to everyone out there for for listening. For giving us the feedback, you can do that by sending email to feedback at eaa.org. You can comment on the blog posts when we share these episodes at inspire.eaa.org. Uh, share those posts on Facebook. Give us reviews on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever platform you use. Uh, that feedback means the world to us, and uh, and we wouldn't be doing it uh, if we hadn't gotten such, uh, such good positive responses. So with that... Thanks again to everybody out there, and we'll look forward to catching up to you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot. <laughs>